Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Tonight we are looking at Anguttara Nikaya Book of Fours, Sutta 170, the Yuganada Sutta. The Yuganada Sutta is a part of this unfortunate controversy in regards to tranquility and insight. And uh, it's telling that this, this sutta being an important part of that controversy is uh, a sutta delivered by Ananda. It's again not one of these that, that wasn't actually taught by the Buddha. Why I think that's telling is because it seems like the Buddha didn't really enter into this sort of debate one way or the other. So anyone who tries to come up with a definitive um, conclusion in regards to tranquility and insight like this is necessary or that's necessary or this isn't necessary or this isn't must be this way, it must be that way tries to pigeonhole the teaching is uh, you know, the Buddha wasn't interested in this sort of thing he seemed to leave a lot open and part of uh, one clue in regards to that is the Buddha's teaching on karma as being very difficult to understand. So it's very difficult for us to come to a conclusion that this is what's going to lead a person to enlightenment and that's not going to lead a person to enlightenment because it's so many factors involved. Of course, mostly the, own, the individual's bent. But we do have some um, basic principles that we can adhere to. So we, so it, it would also be wrong to suggest that any practice of any sort will lead to enlightenment. Obviously, any practice involved with unwholesomeness is not going to lead to enlightenment. But then, even still, as we learned yesterday, I think another sutta by Ananda, right? Um, desire can, things like desire, even, even anger, can potentially instigate proper practice. But it is, nonetheless, far more likely for anyone in the world to practice in the wrong way. And otherwise we'd all be enlightened. Otherwise it would be just something you fall into. So it's not that it doesn't matter how you practice. It's that uh, it's, to be dogmatic and say this is never going to lead you to enlightenment or that's never going you need to do this to go to enlightenment and so on. You have to be very careful about that. Now what, the basic principles we do know are that in order to become enlightened you have to be studying reality. So any meditation that is not based on reality it is not in and of itself enough to take you to enlightenment. That being said, it's very easy, as we'll hopefully see through this sutta, for someone who's practicing meditation based on a concept to suddenly hit upon 
reality suddenly or to eventually hit upon reality and, and use their the meditation um, the cultivation of the meditative state to see things clearly to understand reality but that's an important the most important point in meditation is that you have to come to understand reality because if your mind is focused in another direction you'll never get there I mean one of the big um, instigators I think of this conflict between tranquility and insight is that tranquility sounds like so much fun it sounds so wonderful peace and calm it's why most people begin to meditate it's not as common for people to, s to want to meditate in order to find insight mostly when you think of meditation you think of it as something that tranquilizes, calms the mind as an escape from your problems I don't normally think of meditation as solving our problems and and so as a result of this attachment to tranquility we uh, are much more inclined to practice meditation based on a concept something that gives us a quick fix focuses the mind focus on a color or a light imagery there's a lot of creative visualization, lots of transcendental meditations out there that are actually fairly easy to pick up. If you ever try and pick them up, you can cultivate great states of calm. And you know, just talking about it, most people think, oh, that sounds like something I want to do. But you notice that that wasn't really the Buddha's uh, own bent. He did often talk about these sorts of meditations where you feel so good the meditation but he was clear um, that the way to enlightenment um, is is beyond them that, that there's a limit to them the way to enlightenment of course is the Four Noble Truths it's to fully understand suffering that doesn't sound so, like so much fun parinyaya dukkang parinyayanti bhikme bhikkhavi Suffering is to be fully understood. That's the way to enlightenment. So you have to study and, and really understand suffering. Why? Because, well, that's the problem. Because our suffering is caused by clinging to things that are causing us suffering. And when you see suffering, you see that these things are unpleasant, undesirable, not leading to happiness, unsatisfying. Then you let them go you don't suffer so some basic principles you have to come to see clearly in order to become enlightened it's not just about feeling peaceful and calm now that being said Ananda makes some good points here he says well anyone I've seen who uh, comes to me and tells me that they've attained arahantship because people would talk to Ananda about these sorts of things the other monks monks would talk about these things amongst themselves but especially with Ananda because Ananda would record the sayings of the Arahants and so we have in the Theragatha and the Therigatha we have these verses of elder monks, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis who had become enlightened and so 
He said, of all these people, they've done it in one of four ways, as far as I can see. Samatha pubangamang vipassanang bhavihiti With samatha, tranquility as a base, or as a pubangama, a prior thing that came before. With samatha proceeding, they cultivate insight. With tranquility proceeding, they, they cultivate insight. So somebody might practice meditation just based on a concept. It means they're not developing insight at all. But then they begin to switch and, and apply the, the state of mind to ultimate reality. The, the clarity of mind that they have for the concept, they apply that to ultimate reality and so they cultivate insight. Another person, vipassana pubangamang samatang bhaveti. With vipassana insight as a precursor, they cultivate samatha. So this is a person like in our tradition. This is what the way we would uh, progress. Cultivating insight first, and through insight you calm down. I mean, that's a part of what insight does. Through the practice of insight, your mind becomes tranquil. Why? Because you're no longer reacting. You're seeing things as they are. But it's unpleasant. In the, you know, the samatha first is pleasant and then unpleasant. The vipassana first is unpleasant and then pleasant. Something like that. A third person, samatha vipassanang yuga nadhang bhaveti, practices. Uh, samatha, insight, tranquility and insight yoke together cultivates them in conjunction in unison so this is, um, this is the sort of person who applies insight to their samatha practice, this is the, the commentary it says, this is the sort of person who um, who applies insight to the tranquility. So you, you feel calm through the tranquility and your mind will be fixed and focused, but you apply mindfulness to those actual states where you apply insight. And so you're cultivating them together. Um, it's a third way of going about it. And the fourth type of person, this one's a little bit odd, bhikkhuno dhammudhad Manasangaroti. A person is the person's mind is caught up in right, it's caught up or is obsessed with uh, distraction in regards to the Dhamma in regards to dhammas and what this actually means is a little bit uh, I think a little bit up in the air the commentary has its own ideas Bhikkhu Bodhi doesn't agree with the commentary but the idea is that one is um, I would say able to become enlightened but there's something disturbing them there's some dhamma or some reality some state 
like for example maybe they have a teacher who they they uh, were nasty to and they haven't come to terms with that but then they come to terms with it forgiving the, asking forgiveness and uh, then they're able to overcome because samayo hotiso samayo yang tang jitang anjatame santitati sanisidati ekodihoti samadhyati so after a while they they calm that down the distraction goes away and then they're able to become enlightened so I guess the sense here is that the person isn't even practicing meditation perhaps they're already set to become enlightened or they've practiced a lot of meditation in the past but what tips them over is some something in their mind works out I would say this one is probably fairly rare or at least idiosyncratic um, and there's something something somewhat special about it it's uh, an odd one but it gives even a fourth category that someone isn't isn't even practicing samadhar vipassana but their mind is distracted and after not being distracted they attain enlightenment It's an interesting sutta, so it's one that we often quote and talk about, especially when we're fighting over this whole samatha vipassana thing. There are schools out there that say you have to enter into a certain type of trance state or jhana state before you can attain enlightenment. And Ananda seems to have disagreed with them. There's certainly nothing clear in the Buddhist teaching about this one way or the other people will quote this or that sutta but it seems the Buddha left it open there's many different ways most importantly is that you come to see things clearly as, as they are and there's no question that you need both samatha and vipassana to do that your mind has to be clear and it has to be calm how you go about that there are according to the sutta I think it's a good example of sort of uh, an outline of how there are many different ways of accomplishing that Visuddhimagga is a good text that goes into much more detail about different ways in which you could undertake to cultivate samatha and vipassana but ultimately you need them both it means you really have well or go that fourth way, right? It seems there is another way. That some people are just able to figure things out without samatha or vipassana. It's a bit of an odd category because to some extent there is still a requirement for samatha and vipassana, but it would just be, I guess, at the moment of the path. It means that you haven't practiced either, but somehow things work out. So you have this flash of insight, which is accompanied by a flash of pure concentration or calm tranquility. It has to have both. But it's just a moment at the moment of the path, I guess. Anyway, there's different interpretations of what exactly is meant here. Again, it's not actually the Buddha's words, but Ananda is certainly a force to be reckoned with. So, there's our Dhamma for tonight. Something interesting. Do we have questions? Yeah.
excuse me, we have questions. Namaste. When speaking in regard to the notion of God, you say everything that is not in line with reality should be disregarded. But yet, I have also heard you say that aspects of reality should be disregarded, such as physics, where you say to the effect that, to paraphrase, the physical laws of the universe might change. This is a contradiction, is it not? My interest is not actually in the notions of gods. It is in perception and understanding. Should one disregard the reality that has been observed and experienced for the span of humanity? For example, that gravity exists because it is in line with teaching? Or question it and hold it up against the evidence that gravity and the other observed laws, in fact, do exist because they are in line with reality? My second query is much more in relation to the above-mentioned video. You speak of the notion of God. Should that not be God's? And if so, and if so, which, if any, gods? Okay, um, what was I talking about in regards to the laws of physics? I was saying that gravi gravity could change, the speed of light could change. Um, what was my point? Do you remember, Robin? What was I talking about? I think that you were saying that physics weren't ultimate reality because it could change. Hmm. Right. Um, I mean, that's really the point, is that physics is something you experience second-hand. It's not something... It's not a first-hand. Like, you don't experience atoms. You don't experience... Um, whatever, molecules, cells. You don't experience any of these things. You experience seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. That's the difference. So it's not a contradiction at all. You don't even experience gravity. What you experience is tension. Experience a physical sensation. It's a feeling. Nothing else. Gravity is a concept. So, um, what that means, it's not, it's not a concept, it's a, something that is experienced in the abstract. Well, or it is a concept. Um, based on patterns, but we have no idea what those patterns mean. We have mapped out, insofar as we can tell, the way it is working right now. But suppose there were a God. Suppose there were God out there. God meaning in complete control, having created this universe and in complete control of it. Well, tomorrow they could decide they want to change things. Suddenly the speed of light is twice what it was. or Suddenly um, you know, E equals MC cubed or something. I mean, that's a just something changes. Maybe gravity increases or whatever, I don't know. Things could change. It's not likely, and there's no reason to believe that it would. But the point is we, we can't ever know that it's not going to. Because that's a, a sphere of you know, potential existence that we can't experience. It's not real for us. But what we can say is that seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing, smelling is smelling, tasting is tasting, feeling is feeling, thinking is thinking. That's things that we can know. It's very little, but we can know that. But there's something else there that's interesting that you didn't quite mention, but maybe we're thinking, um, is that there is a use for inference, both in the world and in the Dhamma, not just in the world. 
So in the world we infer, or we, yeah, we infer that the laws of physics that we experience are that way universally. I mean, they're universal and they're constant and and they're they're law, right? We infer that, and that's useful. It may change, but we have no reason to think it will. Think it will, and it's not useful for us to think it might. I mean, it's good maybe to acknowledge the potential, but that's all. And that's useful because it allows us to live our lives. Now, in the Dhamma, we infer things as well. We infer that um, there is nothing else beyond um, what we're experiencing, and that all experience is the way we experience it. So we see seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking arise and cease. Right? It arises and ceases, and we start to see that the nature of reality is arising and ceasing. Therefore, we see that it's unsatisfying, and we see that it's uncontrollable. Now, we don't know, uh, as meditators, whether there's something out there, out there that's different from that. But we infer, because it's all we experience, and we have no reason to think otherwise. And that's actually important, because the shift comes about when you start to uh, realize or you, you cultivate a realization that isn't actually based on knowledge, but it's a realization that everything, everything that arises, ceases. Right? You don't actually know that. You haven't experienced everything that arises, cease. But you have this kind of inference that's perfectly reasonable, and it doesn't even matter because it, it overwhelms the mind. It's real. There's a real uh, belief, you have to say, because it's not really an, an understanding. It's a belief that everything is, is everything that arises ceases. You don't know that for sure. But through the inference, you, you become enlightened, which is interesting. Um, the other one, God, gods. Well, I mean, God would be something different. God, in, in, most, in many traditions that believe in a God, think of it differently. Gods are just... Like it's deism, I think it's called, or pantheism or something. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't have much to say about that que question. I'm not really sure what the point is. Can a meditation based on reality lead to jhana? In mm -hmm. other words, focusing on the raw sensations at the tip of the nose and returning whenever the mind wanders? like I can't escape this no matter what everyone wants to know how do I get to jhana right it's the it's the, the yeah well they always say that you know jhana when you, when you enter jhana your hindrances drop away so that sounds pretty cool yeah well because you're focused on one in one place there's no room for the hindrances uh, there are two kinds of jhana, according to the commentary, so according to the tradition that I follow. There's aramanupani jhana and lakkanupani jhana. Aramanupani jhana is where you focus on a single object, and so of course the hindrances drop away. Lakkanupani jhana is where you focus on reality, and thereby the hindrances drop away because you see reality objectively. So yes, it leads to a certain type of jhana. Now the suttas, 
It's funny, anyone, if you ever study up on the idea of jhana, you'll realize that there's no consensus about what a jhana is. There's some fairly clear suttas about it, but everyone looks at it differently and thinks of it differently and has different ideas about it. Um, so I like the commentary's idea. It's quite clear and un easily understandable. I mean, if you're just focusing at the nose, I don't consider that meditation. A lot of people do, but I don't. For me, meditation is where you have a, a mantra and you repeat the mantra to yourself. For the most part. That's, I mean, that's maybe being somewhat dogmatic, but I'm not really, not really impressed by meditators who say they're just focusing the mind on something. It's not really, it's not really powerful. I'm more on, on the mantra side, whether it be samatha or vipassana. Because if you're just focusing, well, how do you define that as different from your ordinary state? That you're forcing the mind to be somewhere? It's, it's a bit risky, I would say. Sketchy. Lumpo Chodok says it's not, that's not, that type of meditation won't free you from titi manatanha there's still the subtle clinging subtle conceit, subtle view because you're kind of forcing the mind to stay in one spot or something or to do something I mean we're kind of doing that with ours but it's but the mantra makes it so much clearer because you're reminding yourself this is this, this is this rather than just pushing the mind onto something A lot of strong, unwholesome emotions are bubbling up that are interfering with my reactivity to my teacher's laughter. Should I use tranquility meditation to suppress the emotions in order to give myself enough room to cultivate insight? Or should I be headstrong and push through the thorns despite these emotions temporarily hindering my insight cultivation? Thanks. Look, I'm going to make it clear so we can cut off these questions. I don't teach samatha meditation. I don't teach tranquility. I don't teach it as being necessary. I don't recommend it. If you want to go practice tranquility, go somewhere else. Insight meditation is all that you need. Um, it's not the only way. There are other ways. But if you come asking me questions about tranquility, I'm just going to refer you back to my book on how to meditate with sort of a general claim that it solves all your problems. So, <laughs> so let's go with that. Can one be addicted to mindfulness? Sometimes I notice that I avoid mentally demanding situations that prevent me from being mindful. Am I addicted to mindfulness? It's kind of an odd sort of thing to say. Mindfulness doesn't, you know, mindfulness is a part of your mind. You can, you can, you can like it. So yes, you can like the idea of being mindful, but you're not addicted to mindfulness. At the moment when you're mindful, there's no liking of it. But after you are mindful, you can be happy that you are mindful and like that. But it's not like um, you taste something sweet and there's a liking of it when you taste it. And the time when you're mindful, you can't actually be, you can't actually like it. There's no clinging to the mindfulness. 
Right, but sometimes I notice I avoid mentally demanding situations. Well, in our tradition, mindfulness or sati is the path to enlightenment. So anything that actually does make it easier for you to be mindful is, is wise. So, no, I mean, deciding to do something or not do something because it interferes with something else is not necessarily addiction to that thing. It can very much base, be based on things like wisdom, understanding, right view. It could be based on belief, confidence, there's lots of different reasons. mentioned that as a monk there are rules regarding hinting for someone to do something that would be beneficial for you. I feel this way regarding spirituality and the like. I wish to talk to more people about it, but feel a reservation that they need to be the one to bring up the subject. My desire for this is to understand the path better. Two minds are better than one, and hopefully help them also. Do you think I should force myself to talk about these things? I'm pretty reserved. What's a good way to start off the conversation? I realize that the insight might take place within oneself, but a community, friends, etc., seems beneficial. Much meted to you at all on the path. Community is good. I mean, I would recommend finding a community. I don't really see the issue. I mean, my rules in regards to people hinting is um, it's not it's not at all in regards to what is beneficial to me. It's the things that uh, are are of material possessions. It's in regards to dhamma. You're perfectly in your right to. It's perfectly reasonable, proper to take advantage of anyone who is offering to teach. Now, if they're not offering to teach, if you go to them and they don't teach you anything, well, that's another thing. But uh, absolutely, you have to work for your own benefit. And that's an understand, understood reality in Buddhism. So it's kind of interesting. You'll, 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 uh, for your benefit, you'll go to a teacher and try to get them to teach you, and for their benefit, they'll just ignore you. <laughs> because. Yeah, they want, they want to work at work on their own happiness and peace. That can happen. There's often people would go to arahants and the arahants would say, you know, I'm sorry, it would just make me tired if I were to try to teach you because you wouldn't understand. And so they don't even teach them. The way I was reading the, the way I was interpreting it, it sounded like... Uh, this person wanted to be, you know, to teach people or to help teach and help the people that they're in contact with. No? I don't really understand what this or she is trying to say. You, you, you understood it? I, I thought the person was asking about themselves, you know, helping other people, talking 
to other people about their spirituality and, you know, so to have two minds better than one, have people to talk about their path with. Yeah, well, I mean, good. That's a good thing. Find people who are like-minded and work with them. If you can't find people who are like-minded, don't just go finding people. But if you have people who are at least e at least your equals, stick with them. I think people are so interested in the jhanas because they seem like the goalposts in your practice to know for certain that you are improving. In your tradition, what should we be on the lookout for to know that we are improving? Goalposts, so to speak. Right, well, meditation is a training. It's, there are meditations that lead to these special states like jhanas and magical powers, but that's not mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness meditation is a training, so you get better at it. And I think people have sometimes unreasonable expectations that make them miss the fact that they're getting better at it. You know, it, Just the fact that you're getting better at meditation, you know, getting less um, distracted, less... Uh, no, not less distracted, but less reactive towards your experiences. So basically less greed, less anger, less delusion and you're learning to be more objective and you're sorting things out and you're just able to walk back and forth and sit you know, if you can do that, you can do anything and it doesn't matter what you do, but if you can do it mindfully that's a sign of improvement it's not like suddenly fireworks go off in your head and you've got goalposts there's no goalposts, you're just getting better the only real goalpost is, is Nibbana when you attain Nibbana, then you've reached the goal But yeah, everyone wants fireworks, something that's tangible. There's nothing tangible. It's like if you practice golf, you don't suddenly enter into the golf jhana. You, you just get better at golf or tennis or chess, you know. You get better at it. Rock climbing. You don't suddenly become a rock climber. You get better at it. It's a training. There's no reason to think this would be any different. Should we avoid long words when noting? For example, in my language, we don't just say taste, we say, I feel a taste. So sometimes I just say taste. Is this a better practice? Taste is just a better practice, yes. Shorter is generally better. I mean, or simple, anyway, is generally better. Like we normally say in English, tasting, tasting. In Thai, it's too short, so they add a syllable. Rot no, rot no, no is something they add to everything. It doesn't mean anything, it's just... No means like this. Indeed. It's like uh, an exclamation almost, like... Like, isn't it? It's kind of like an isn't it? Like where you say, wow, that's great, isn't it? 
Or well, the Canadians say no at the end. A, we say A. No, I say no. You're probably getting it from me. Oh, no? Like you French? You say no. You I say, say no. I say no, but I think that's more of an Asian thing. Oh, okay. I think. Actually, I'm not sure. No? No. Actually, it's Ajahn Tong says that. No. <laughs> I thought that was the Canadian thing. No. Yeah. No, that's, that's a me thing. It's from Asia. From Thai, actually, probably. Uh, here we say A. So A would be like no. Take off A. Can one not be mindful by concentrating the mind on the present moment without saying a mantra? Mindfulness cannot be dependent on language. What happens when we die and cannot remember the words we used? Finally, don't you think that the mind more easily clings to a past moment that is not entirely the same by repeating a specific mantra? Mindfulness is a quality, so the, the, the noting is, is called tirasanya. This is what the Abhidhamma says is the proximate cause of mindfulness. Now, we use language, and language is very much attached to our sanya, our, our perception, or our, our recognitions of things. But, yes, technically you could absolutely do without the words. The words are... Um, the method of meditation that is most commonly used in Buddhism and has been since, as far as I know, the time of, well, the time is at least the Visuddhimagga. In the Visuddhimagga, it's quite clear you see, when you practice earth casino, you say, Pattavi, Pattavi. Now, it's just to suggest some theory that that's going to cause you to cling to a past moment that is not entirely the same is, well, it certainly doesn't carry out in reality, so no, I absolutely don't think that. It actually makes it much, make, brings you much closer to the reality. I mean, it takes a little bit of training to get into. And it's not very comfortable in the beginning, but it absolutely doesn't take you to some past moment. All it's doing is is reacting in a non-reactive way. It's teaching you to see things as they are. So when you see something, you remind yourself. Sat, that's what sati means. It means to remember or to remind yourself. You're remembering that that's just seeing. You're remembering it and not forgetting that reality. So you're reminding yourself. Like, let's see. Now I'm assuming you come from a different tradition, so far be it from me to argue or debate among traditions. Um, so, you know, honestly, all this, we're going to get, it sounds like we might get lots of questions like this, and I'd rather just drop it. If you're not interested in, I assume that if you're coming here to ask questions, and I'd like to assume, that you're, you, um, it's because you're practicing or interested in practicing the technique that I teach. Now, if you're interested in something else, I'm not here to debate. So, nope, that this doesn't turn into that. Can you speak about your lineage a little bit? I know that Ajahn Tong is Thai, but you have also mentioned Mahasi Sayadaw, who is Burmese. What is the connection between the two? So Ajahn Tong actually went to Burma and met Mahasi Sayadaw, but it sounds like he did more of his meditation practice in Bangkok, because by that time Mahasi Sayadaw had come to Thailand and had sent Burmese monks to Thailand to teach Vipassana. 
and there were Thai monks going to Burma. So by the time Ajahn Tong got there, it was already a big thing in Bangkok. He was sent. He, there were two monks. I mean, maybe it didn't happen like this, but the head monk in Chiang Mai used to t say it this way: that he and Ajahn Tong, uh, he 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 said he would do the the political way, so he became the head of the province, and Ajahn Tong should do the meditation way. That's how he tells it in retrospect. I'm I'm assuming it wasn't quite so. You know, there were only two monks or something, but uh, Ajahn Tong was, I guess, sent from Chiang Mai to Bangkok as sort of the Chiang Mai representative. And he's mentioned, it was either in a book I read, like they had this list of all the teachers and they recognized him as the, ch you know, sort of like one of the Chiang Mai representatives for this tradition, the Mahasi tradition in Thailand, way back when. I think Mahasi Sayada actually came to Wat Rampung when Ajahn Tong was there. It seems to me that they talk about that having happened. But Lumpo Chodok is one of Ajahn Tong's teachers and he was more he went to he went to Burma as well. He went to Burma as well. Maybe with Ajahn Tong. Probably. I don't remember. That's the person in the other picture. Yeah. And that's Ajahn Tong's teacher? One of them. I, I mean, probably not the monk who I should have in that picture. If I've only got two pictures, I should probably put Mahasi in the other one. But it's just a picture someone gave me in Thailand, so I, I've been carrying it around. I thought, oh, it'd be nice to frame that. But I should get a picture of Mahasi Sayada. That would be more to the point, though. Used to have used to have a picture of Mahasi Sayada. I'd like to know, in your Theravada view, what are the main differences between Theravada and Zen, and why do you prefer Theravada? It's, I mean, I I came to Theravada. Well, that's actually not true. No, it's actually not true. I came to Zen first. Funny enough, I was in Chiang Mai. And I was studying Zen, I was reading books on Zen, I bought books on Zen and studying them, trying to practice. I remember sitting in my room trying to meditate. Although, okay, fair enough, I, the first meditation that I took seriously, or I practiced seriously, was Theravada meditation. So I would say I'd started off a little bit biased in that sense. So I never actually went and did intensive Zen meditation. And it's, as is often the case, you do tend to stick or many people do tend to stick with their original lineage, and you know there's there's an understanding that you know there are different paths, there are different ways of approaching. Some some are going to go in different directions. Some are not even going to lead to the goal. But uh, you know there are different ways of approaching, not an infinite number, but there are different ways of approaching the same goal. So it's fine if everyone just sticks, and to some extent, sticks to their original practice. Now. Trying to be as objective as I can, I'm still going to be have my own opinions, but so I'm I'm not going to be this arbiter or or judge. I'm not a neutral party. I have my views and opinions, but if I try to take away my any sort of attachment I might have to Theravada Buddhism or to my tradition, then um, arguably, I think Zen is is a bit. Um, vaguely defined 
you know, the word Zen maybe originally had some strength to it, but you know, it makes some fairly strong claims, first about lineage, you know, the idea that Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma was numbers, number 24 or something, or I don't know how many in, in order from the Buddha, and that it was the only lineage. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit weird in different ways, like the idea of Satori and, and the different claims and, and the inability to pinpoint it, in pinpoint, you know, what is Zen, for example, uh, the unspeakable or, or the indescribable, you can't, um, something you can't pin down. I mean, sure, then maybe that's, that's right, but it's also a convenient way of avoiding having to commit to anything, right? Having to actually be anything. So it's easy to be slippery that way. So as a Theravada Buddhist, I'm, and that puts me in a certain category, I'm, I'm not that impressed by Zen meditation in general. Of course, what is called Zen is a broad category. It's, it, what exactly Zen means depends very much on who's describing it. So that's a gro gross generalization, but in general I'm not that impressed by it. Theravada Buddhism, on the other hand, is quite uh, analytical, I would say scientific, if you stick to certain parts of it, to you know, the core of it. Um, and when seen in the light that I see it in, it to me appears to be rather um, well put together, uh, reasonable, uh, well explainable, uh, broad, well-formed, you know, I mean, it's just many things, many qualities that I appreciate about it. I mean, it has its wrinkles and warts that that I, you know, don't really understand or I'm not really all that fond of. I mean, the whole issue with women is a bit of an issue and maybe some others. I think the women one is really the one that I've always had a bit of a difficulty with. I mean, and I just see that as sort of a wrinkle in, uh, in terms of culture and whatever, and maybe in the time of India. But anyway, not, not to go into too much detail about something specific like that, Theravada Buddhism seems like a really useful tool to me to identify myself with. By the women issue, do you mean women can't technically be ordained. Oh, there's more than that. There's a lot of misogyny in, in the texts. Women are, are degraded in different ways, like they're talked badly about. So, I mean, men, much of it can be argued as well. He's talking to men and, and he's trying to tell them how bad women are so that, you know, that they realize, oh yeah, let's not get involved with women kind of thing. But there are passages that taken on their at face value don't appear to be that nice towards women. That's, I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to deny that. So, I mean, I think Theravada Buddhist women who who, who study uh, tend to you know, downplay that or or try and you know, brush it aside, which is you know, that's sort of what I try to do because it doesn't detract from the beauty of the Buddhist the Theravada Buddhist teaching. I mean, the thing is. Most other traditions, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, they all 
accept the premises of Theravada Buddhism. They just add stuff on for the most part. You know, you'll hear them all talk about this as being the basic original teachings of the Buddha. They just add other teachings or they you know, interpret the teachings or look at the teachings as being of varying degrees of importance. Regarding my question, some people may not have flowered yet, or even simply not shown that they are on my level. Maybe I should avoid trying to flower with people that aren't on my level yet? If you don't want to clarify, that's fine. Uh, yes, I think I, mean, I, was, I thought I made that somewhat clear that try and stick with people who are at least your equal or, or, or your better. At least, unless you, you know, if you've become enlightened. Sorry, I kind of smile because it's it, it's it's a hard thing to say because anytime you you talk to people about when they become enlightened, it, I mean, it's common for people to miss to misjudge themselves and to think they are an arahant. I have a I had a woman. Um, I don't know if she was even being serious or it was a scam or something, but she was describing how she was a lay woman uh, arahant, and then I, you know, I looked at her 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 background and hey, it was some kind of business or something. It was really weird. But you often get these people who talk about being enlightened. Um, I think you know, as you become more enlightened, you can be more um, open to dealing with people who are. You know, for lack of a better word, below you. But you know, the meaning there is simply just a analytical appreciation of the fact that they haven't yet cultivated. And it, and that's even deceptive, I suppose. I mean, another thing you might want to argue is that well, it's it's hard to say who's below who, right? You know, it's just silly conceit to say such a thing. Um, so you might want to be a little bit more general in what you say, it would be something like people who have a lot of defilements. Hey, maybe they're on the same level as you, but don't hang out with people who have lots of defilements, regardless of whether you also have lots of defilements. Try and find people who, in your estimation, have few defilements, because that'll be more beneficial to you. How are your food arrangements? Where are you eating breakfast or lunch? Well, this morning some people came and brought me lunch. I didn't eat breakfast this morning, so I just had one meal. Tomorrow, I don't know. Tomorrow I have a doctor's appointment. Uh, it turns out I might have a stomach parasite from June when I was in Sri Lanka. The last day I got quite well, fairly sick, thought I had deng dengue. Turns out it was just a stomach bug, but since that day I've had stomach problems. Like mm, something's wrong. So tomorrow I'm going to go see the doctor at 9:30, which means I kind of have a tight schedule. But I'll probably go to uh, I don't know. I'll go to the cafeteria at McMaster because um, yeah. Anyway, my appoint my arrangements are fine. There's lots of people. There's a group of local people, mostly Sri Lankans, who 
come and offer me food five days a week and then two days a week I'm at McMaster so at the university so um, my wonderful group of supporters have that's all you guys have put together a meal plan for me so I can just go and get food at the university that's what I'll do tomorrow probably Good luck with the doctor's appointment. What is so great about silence and dropping one's ego? I personally tried this, but still don't understand. How does dropping all thought give you this thing called finding yourself, happiness, etc.? Well, it's not what we practice. I'm not sure if you've actually read my... Uh, booklet, but that's what I would recommend is that you start by rec reading my booklet on how to meditate and practicing that way because it's not about dropping all thought. Can lineages be combined? For example, if you want to study Tibetan karma, Kagyu, and combine it with Theravada? I wouldn't but you can do what you want. I'm not your father or your mother. Does Buddhism believe in the law of attraction that if you want something you should desire it badly then drop it all together? Then when you drop it suddenly it comes to you? No. the opposite. Yeah, we certain, certainly shouldn't try to desire things badly. That's, <laughs> that's a recipe for disaster. As we cultivate desire, we don't want to cultivate desire. It's, that's where addiction comes from. How do we do? You're all caught up on questions. Can we scare, scare everyone away yet? Well, I have one if you have a couple more minutes. All right. Okay. For you, anything. Yeah. In the in tonight's Dhamma talk, in the third type, mm. we're combining Samatha and Vipassana. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand what that was. So you you I didn't quite understand okay, the third one. Well, let's say the first one. It's it's odd because the first one and the third one, I usually just blend together. But let's say the first one is you you practice pure tranquility, not concerned with insight, and then after that you practice insight but the, the, the tranquility that you've practiced is kind of a support with the qualities that you've gained from it so that's samatha first then vipassana samatha and vipassana together you're practicing tranquility but you apply vipassana to the actual jhana factors so you're calm because of the jhana and then you start saying to yourself we would say you know calm calm so the, you're calm because you're saying patavi patavi or something and then instead you start saying Calm, calm. So as you're, you you apply it to the summit of practice, that's what the commentary says about the third one. You might just argue that that uh, Ananda is being more general based on his own observations, and he isn't actually thinking in terms of ultimate realities. So that it's true that some people are very concentrated but not really seeing clearly. Some people are very seeing things clearly but they're not concentrated enough to really you know, get anywhere with it. 
and other people are both concentrated and, and focused. And so either way, you have to bring them together. Thank you, Bhante. But, uh, but again, th this is just a general basic teaching, the uh, ultimate reality of to study Abhidhamma and really understand, if you want to understand what's going on on an ultimate level in terms of mind states, which isn't by any means necessary. One more question. Is no, it bad? No, no. Can't we just put it off till tomorrow? Okay. All right, go ahead. Is it a good one? Uh, I think it's a short one. Right. Is it bad, comma, to argue with another person? I mean, argue with another person is just a word. What does it mean? Karma isn't isn't in. Let's let's cut that one off and just say. Karma is not in what you do or say, it's in the intentions or the mind state behind what you do or say. So uh, you can kill something, but if you don't have the intention for it to die, you don't have the intention to kill it, then the killing of it is impotent. So when you're arguing with someone, well, there's some intention or mind state behind it, but you could be arguing in order to help them. Someone says, look, I want to drink this poison, you could say, look, I don't think you should drink that poison because it's going to kill you. Then they might say, oh, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't. So you actually, it was good that you argued with them. So it, it, it's too, you, haven't, you haven't given enough parameters to, to get into a... If you asked me, is it bad karma to get into a screaming match with someone else? And I would say, yes, that's probably quite bad karma. Because it sounds like you'd be very angry when you were screaming at them. But on the other hand, if they were just tone deaf, if they were just deaf, and you had to scream at them, that would be different. Okay, that's all for tonight. Thank you, Robin, for your help. Thanks, everyone, for your questions. Hope I didn't scare anyone away. Have a good night. Thank you, Bhante. Good night.